I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. You know, there's a lot of room for disagreement and debate in American democracy. But there are times when we are under existential threats about who we really are as a people. And when those moments occur and when abuses start taking place, you expect the haters to show up. I mean, for those of when you're in my business and you got, you know, you're suiting up, you know the haters are coming. You know, you know who the enemies are. But what you really get completely surprised by is people of goodwill who just don't do anything. When New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu addressed the people of his city in May 2017 about his decision to take down four Confederate monuments, including the statue of Robert E. Lee, he struck a nerve throughout the nation. His brave and inspirational speech has been heard by millions. Mayor Landrieu's relationship to the question of race in America is deeply personal and begins for him with his own family's history and the history of the city of his birth. From the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Page. None of us live in isolation, geographically, politically, or historically. We all come from some place, uh, spiritually, emotionally, educationally, and that is certainly true about me. I'm a Southerner through and through. I was born in a uniquely Southern place that is quite different from places that are not too far from it. So Kiln, Mississippi, or Biloxi, or Pensacola, Florida, all of which are along the Gulf Coast, or Houston, are very, very different from the city of New Orleans, which, as you may know, we just celebrated our 300th anniversary, which means that we're older than the country. We were here before America became, you know, formally America. And how we got to be who we are and where we came from has a lot to say about where we are today. So New Orleans, as you may know, was a port town. And if anybody knows anything about port towns, port towns are a lot more diverse than any other town because you got all kinds of folks coming in and out. And the folks that were coming in and out were German, they were English, they were French, they were Spanish. 
And of course, they were Africans who were brought over here against their will. And because of the way the world was set up back then and the, um, the governments who were trying to possess what we later became the United States of America didn't have a lot of money, they created public-private partnerships. And John Law got the concession to the part of the world that I eventually grew up in. And it turned out that he also had the concession to Senegal, uh, Gambia, and Haiti. And so the people that he brought against their will on behalf of a government came from Senegal, Gambia, Haiti. But anyway, you get a sense of this, this, this town called New Orleans became a multicultural mecca from the beginning. But part of that was we sold more people into slavery in the city of New Orleans than any place else in the continental United States. And as a consequence, the entire economy of the South uh, actually came through New Orleans and it was slavery that stood up the economy. Uh, and of course, as you jump forward without going through all the iterations of it was in fact why the Civil War was fought, which is the context of the book that we wrote, which was to just speak a truth that for some reason still is painful for a lot of white people in America, whether you were on the right side or the wrong side, that the Civil War was fought to protect slavery and to do so try to destroy the United States of America as we knew it. And history has rendered its judgment on that. But that very simple statement continues to be rejected by a lot of people in the country. And as a consequence, if you don't know your full history and you're not willing to embrace it and you're not willing to go through the pain of it, it's really kind of hard to get to the next place. And so that is the context in which my family lived in the city of New Orleans. I'm one of nine children, raised as Catholics, educated as Catholics, uh, have a lot of Catholic guilt, but <laughs> imbued with a, with a huge sense of social justice, primarily by the Jesuits. And my dad was, I don't know, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He grew up in a house that was 18 feet wide and 60 feet deep. He slept in the storeroom where my, my grandmother, who was of German descent, uh, who's family name was Bechtel, married a guy that had some kind of French descent and probably some African-American blood who had a third grade education that turned on the lights for the electric utility company. And he had one brother. And they kind of found themselves at Jesuit high school. They got themselves to Loyola under the auspices of a number of Jesuit priests who were interested in social change at the time. They both married and one of them had 10 kids and one of them had nine. But we never wanted for anything. And we grew up in a... Um, in a, in a very, turns out, different racial environment than most of our friends because of my father's relationship with one guy um, whose name was Norman C. Francis. You may know him now. Uh, he was the longest serving president of a HBCU, Xavier University in America, but my father met him on their first day of law school and they became best friends before Brown versus Board of Education. And that relationship formed his enlightenment into racial justice and then helped him understand that when he was 29 years old as a legislator with a wife at home with four children and one child in utero, me, became one of two legislators that voted against the governor's segregation plan. So think of George Wallace, think of Jimmy Davis. You might wanna think about Donald Trump, but let's think about that later. But this whole notion of white supremacy and he was kind of born into the rage of that and from earliest times basically said, Norman's my best friend, and I know Norman's smarter than me and better than me, and yeah, he's African-American, but everything they say about African-Americans is wrong. And basically went on to do a lot of very aggressive stuff in civil rights in the South. And uh, 
was the mayor of the city of New Orleans from 1970 to 78, was always very aggressive and progressive about um, including African Americans in the leadership of the city that they primarily owned and built. Uh, and I was just kind of born into that. So um, when I became the mayor of the city of New Orleans, the city, as you know, after Katrina was completely destroyed and the city had to be rebuilt. And it had to be built, the, the, the majesty of the rebuild, besides the technical way that we did it, which was hard, was that the people of New Orleans wanted to build the city back the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. Which meant that we had to really look at ourselves and say, well, are we living our truth? And so it was in that context that the issue of the monuments came up in a particular way after we had kind of rebuilt the city and the reason why we decided to take the step that we did. You might say, and he might agree with you, that it was inevitable that Mitch Landrew would one day become the mayor of New Orleans, as his father was before him. But whether without the benefit of Mitch's extraordinary leadership, it was inevitable that New Orleans would one day take down the statues symbolizing its racist past is a more nuanced question. One that makes us think again about the urgent need for morally courageous leaders in our turbulent times. The entire time, that story I told you about my dad from the time that he was in 1960 through today was taking place and we were bringing African Americans into the city and African Americans are rising to positions of power and prominence both in the church and in government, not-for-profit sector. During that entire time, entire time, in this very small city of New Orleans, which is physically tiny, we had four Confederate monuments, three Confederate monuments, one to the Klan, thanking the Klan for doing something outrageous back in 1896 when they put down uh, the first integrated police force. Somehow somebody thought it would be a good idea to put a monument up to the Klan that won that fight. So one of them was there and the other three were Jefferson Davis, who purported to be the president of a thing that did not really exist called the Confederacy. It was never ever a formal thing. I don't think most Americans know that. It was like a caliphate. But it was not a recognized government formally by anybody relating to anything, but you would think that it was like China. <laughs> and it wasn't. But Jefferson Davis was the purported president, as you know, of the Confederacy. And then uh, P.T. Beauregard was one of the generals in that fight, and then of course Robert E. Lee who, by the way, has never stepped foot in the city of New Orleans. Not once. And we had these three people in their military gear in the most prominent spaces in the city. Now, not to get off on architectural significance or not, but I love circles. I love traffic circles. <laughs> I love the idea of circles when you go to Europe and you see these glorious spaces all over the place. And New Orleans has one, just one. It happens to be on the parade route, and if you haven't been to Mardi Gras, you should come. But it's the singular most obvious spot, and Robert E. Lee sits atop this long thing, and he sits there lording over the city with his military regalia, and we pass by him every day, even my dad. So my father and I both have had this conversation about why, why do we walk by something every day that intentionally sends a message to hurt people and we don't pay attention to it? It's because it doesn't affect us and you're not thinking about it from the perspective of the people who it's sending a message to. And so, just to jump to the front and I'll come back, we ought to all think about how many things we walk by every day that other people say affect them but we can't see because it doesn't affect us. 
And so as we were rebuilding the city of New Orleans, remember, the whole city got destroyed, 17 feet underwater. As we kind of got into, well, what are we going to do for our 300th anniversary? A good friend of mine just kind of checked me, like your friends do. This friend happened to be Wenton Marcellus. <laughs> Y'all know Wenton's? Everybody know who Wenton is? <laughs> well, I don't, he's got big britches, so I don't want to, I just would be great if someone here said they'd have never heard of him. So I, can go, <laughs> I would go tell him, you're not that, you know, big. So, um, Without getting off to too many stories, you may not know this, but y'all know who Harry Connick is too, right? Yeah. Did you know Connor Wenton and Harry grew up in the same house together? You want to know why Harry sounds the way he does? <laughs> Harry was a concert pianist. He didn't get all funked up and jazzed up until Ellis Marcellus, as Wenton's daddy, taught him at the piano with Ellis and his four brothers and sisters right down the street from each other. Think about, think about things that are different coming together to produce something new. Kind of like jazz, <laughs> which is representative of democracy. But what happened was um, 2014, so we're way ahead, two years before the presidential race, Trump is nowhere in anybody's mind. Hillary Clinton hasn't even said she was going to run for president. Charlottesville has not happened. 2014. Wenton was in town doing a concert with jazz at Lincoln Center. He was my friend. I'm the mayor. I'm trying to think about four years from now, how am I going to keep the city moving in a positive direction by doing all these big things to get the city back up and on its feet? And I asked Wenton, who's the greatest historian, he's a musician, music is his medium, history is his thing. I said, I need you to help me curate the 300th anniversary of the city because I need to get the citizens thinking about New Orleans like we were doing the Olympics or doing the World Cup so that we could actually do big things to leave it for the future. And I said, Wenton, I need you to help me curate this thing. I need you to think, help me think about this as an orchestral piece, or the city as a blank slate so we can paint it. And he says, yeah, I'll help you do that. He goes, but I, I would like you to do something for me. And I said, what do you, what? He says, I want you to, I want you to take down the Confederate monuments. <laughs> now, if you're not a politician, you can't really understand <laughs> the weight of that. That's like so ridiculous. That's like a ridiculous request. I just asked you to help me plan a party. <laughs> and you want me to take down the Confederate monuments? Have you lost your damn mind? Mitch's story has me thinking about an unofficial definition of the word citizen that I've always liked, which is that a true citizen is someone who asks the hardest questions of his or her country. My bet is that Mitch Landrew's definition of a true friend would be much the same. And in this one very important case, at least, Wynton Marsalis checked both boxes. He said, do you know, th this is for your ears, do you know why they're there? I'm a smart guy. I, I know a lot of things, but evidently not as much as I think. No, I don't, I don't know why they're there. Do you know who put them up? No, I don't know that either. He goes, do you know what the point of them is? I said, no. I don't know that. But then the next thing he told me, I did know. He said to me, I, I didn't know the fact, but I knew the cause. He said, well, do you know that, uh, that Louis Armstrong left here because of those monuments? Now, I was 24 years, 26 years into my political career, and I'd given a lot of speeches about the great diaspora and people being expelled from the South and taking their intellectual capital, their raw material, and their raw talent someplace else, adding value to it, selling it back to us for a price that was exorbitant and us not getting the benefit of its use. 
I, I, that's in my brain. But I never connect, I never, it, you know how something explodes in your mind and something connects and you go, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. That's really kind of what I felt. Because I knew when he said that, that he wasn't just talking about Louis Armstrong, he was talking about all the African Americans who'd been enslaved that said, I gotta get the hell out of this place because these people are gonna kill me because, I'm le because we're less than. And those monuments, um, when I, he, and then he finally said to me one more thing that you can't ever tell a kid that was raised by the Jesuits. He said, I need you to think about them from my perspective. Can you do that? And he said, will you think about it? Um, to be honest with you, my first response was, you gotta be kidding me. I'm rebuilding the city. This is a big, this is a big thing. It's gonna cause a big fight. I really don't wanna do it. Can somebody else please do it? It's not my responsibility. They're not mine. I don't know anything about them. I was like, that's really like what's going through my brain. But as, way, as my friend asked me, would you think about them? I started thinking about them. And I started answering the questions he asked me. Who put them up? When were they put up? Why were they put up? What's the point of them? And there is a debate about the purpose of the war, but I think history has rendered its verdict, although some people that ran the Confederacy, and I say the Confederacy because not everybody in the South were in favor of the Confederacy. Some of us really kind of thought the Union was important. And so as I thought about what happened was when the war ended in, in 1865, you w may remember that we went through a period of reconstruction. And during that period of time, which you probably do not remember, is that there were lots of African Americans that had ascended to fairly significant positions of political office and wealth, uh, doctors, lawyers, senators in Mississippi, senators in South Carolina, I mean congressmen in South Carolina. We had a black governor in Louisiana, PBS Pinchback. And then all of a sudden, all the people in the South that were feeling threatened, after there was a compromise and the federal troops left, basically exerted whatever physical power they had and basically started subjugating African Americans again. So the black codes came in, et cetera, et cetera, and then somebody decided that even though we lost the war, it was, we think, a lost cause. And this thing, the lost cause, is not my term, it's a term that's been used by historians, which is basically a myth that has been perpetrated. It's one of the greatest myths in the history of the world that even though we lost the war, we really still won, and we still won the narrative. And they began to tell a story of how the Civil War wasn't really fought about slavery, it was about economics. It really wasn't to destroy the country, it was to create something better. Well, if you kind of think about that a little bit, you go, well, you had to destroy the country to do it. So in any event, they decided to send a message, and um, a group of people, well after the Civil War ended, for the first one was put up around 1890, so the Civil War ended in 1865. They started populating the South with these adulations to the warriors that fought the lost cause that was noble and you know, should have been won. And so there are about 3,000 of these across the entire country. So this notion that we're gonna put these things up in places as of reverence, not remembrance, like a Holocaust museum, but in places of reverence, centers of the universe to send a message to African Americans that you are less than. And even though we lost the war, you're still not welcome here. So if you're a young black kid, or a young black girl, or any, really anybody, a person of color, and you come into a city, and in the most prominent place, you know, you got a guy standing there looking at you like your daddy does when you did a bad thing, um, you kind of get the message that you know, you're not welcome here. And so what do you do? You got any change in your pocket, you have half a brain in your head, 
any level of talent, what do you do? You leave. And so all these people left. And as a consequence, all of the great talent and raw material and intellectual capital, a la Wenton Marcellus, who, by the way, is in New York right now, running jazz at Lincoln Center, not New Orleans, running jazz at New Orleans Center, in a building that costs $800 million with 3,000 employees producing the most beautiful music in the world, is not in New Orleans. And neither was Louis Armstrong. And neither are the other innumerable people who have changed the world dramatically. And so who lost at the end of the day? And, uh, and so that was really kind of the context in which we said, uh, after I find out about that, I came back and said, gee, Winton, now I know. Now here was the problem. Once I found out what they were for, who put them up, and why they were there, I really was just still trying to find another way out, which was this. I'm rebuilding the whole city. I don't have time. That's not my property. And I'm not about to go fight the legislature and the Congress to advocate to take them down, except I found out that the city owned the property. <laughs> and in 1890, Mayor Behan, who was a Confederate soldier, actually put them up, which meant that I'm the only person who could take them down. <laughs> then this was kind of gut check, Tom. It was like, well, you know, I realized this is when, when you look in the mirror and you either call yourself a liar or you say, I really believe the things I've been saying for the past 30 years of my life. And I've been giving this speech about New Orleans and we're not gonna build the city back the way it was. Because the night before Katrina, the city wasn't where it needed to be. We had a lot of problems that we had to fix, which caused us to look at ourselves. I said, we're gonna build the city back the way it should have always been if we would have gotten it right the first time. And if that, if that was true and we were gonna live with integrity, those monuments were a historical lie. They didn't represent who the city of New Orleans ever was because we were not a Confederate town. We were always a multicultural town. We always believed in openness. We didn't believe in exclusion. And those monuments were an affront to who we were. Plus they were a historical lie and it was a historical error because the, the Confederacy tried to destroy the country. So I was like, There's no, actually this is really should not be a debate. That's what I thought, although other people had a different opinion. <laughs> and so we decided to start the process of taking them down. And it was a long process, it took two years went through seven different lawsuits, went to the legislature, Congress decided not to do anything about it, the courts decided we were right, and then we started the process of taking them down, which it whole, itself was a whole nother saga because I couldn't find anybody to get me a crane because they were owned mostly by white businesses and nobody wanted to get hurt. And so, now think about the difference. You hear this from your black friends. The jury segregation versus regular segregation by law and by fact, you can pass the law, but if you don't have the power, if you don't have the mechanisms, if you don't have a crane operator, if you don't own a crane, the law can say what it wants, but nobody's moving. It's like moving a mule, and nobody wants to move, and you couldn't get it done. So it took me a lot longer to use the power of the mayor of the city of New Orleans in the second decade of the 21st century to do something that should have never happened, and to make it right, it was still a big fight in this day and age, which tells you a little bit about how far we still have to go. Anyway, with that, thank you all so much. Mitch Landrieu is more than a politician and a writer. He's a transformational leader whose moral courage helped put a false narrative to rest in New Orleans, allowing the city to reclaim its own past and future. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To hear Mitch Landrieu's unedited talk, to explore the free archive of Sun Valley Writers Conference recordings, and to learn more about the conference, please visit svwc.com.
I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios. 